How's everyone? Doing good? I know you're doing good because it's a little cold in here and it's like over 100 degrees outside, okay? So if we can't get an amen for that, amen? Okay. We can go outside. Um, there's a, a friend of mine, pastors a little bitty church in more downtown Houston. They have no AC this morning. Uh, so the Facebook page said, bring iced tea and dress cool. Um, I texted him. I was like, enjoy it. Try to enjoy it. We were there once. Um, seven years ago, we had no AC. And we had a big bucket of ice in the middle of the room and two fans blowing the ice towards me. So uh, um, we've been there. So I was back there. I was like, it's cold in here. And then I looked outside and I was like, no, I'm not going to complain. Uh, we're doing good this morning. If you have your Bibles, um, grab them and flip open to Mark chapter 10 with me. Excuse me, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. My name is Mike. I am the lead pastor here at FCQ. We're glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. Um, we are going through the Gospel of Mark in a sermon series, uh, just verse by verse, passage by passage. So we'll be in Mark 11 today, um, and we'll start what is the beginning of the end for the Gospel of Mark, um, both as a literary book uh, and then also as the chronology of Jesus' lifetime. Um, we're starting today his last week on earth. Uh, so we've followed him throughout his ministry. He's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's been enacting it, casting out demons, healing people, forgiving people. And now he finally gets into this last week of his life. Um, we're towards the end of Mark. I have good news. I bring gospel this morning. Uh, I have an announcement to unveil, plans to announce. Um, we will be done with Mark by 2016. Uh, it's, it's been a year or two, um, but we will be wrapped up um, by 2016. So we're getting close to the end. It's the beginning of the end here in the gospel of Mark. Um, as Jesus enters into his last week here on earth. If I were to ask you, um, maybe some of our history buffs in the room would be more interested in this question than others, but if I were to ask you, in your lifetime, what was the most important week of history that's occurred? I mean, the most kind of world-changing, the most historic, the most impactful, <laughs> maybe for you as a person, but, but maybe also separately for the world as a whole. I mean, what was the one week that kind of changed everything for you? Um, I know for our, our younger people in the room, it's probably the week of 9-11. I mean, the world is such a different place. Um, I'm not too old, but I can remember a pre-9-11 world. Um, and it's just different, right? Um, I know college students who never went to the airport before 9-11. Um, it changed the world in a drastic place. Um, for those of us who may have some more life experience than I do, I've been told not to call people old, um, but if you've, if you've just circled the globe a few more times, circled the sun, um, there might be other events you might consider, right? A, a week that kind of changed the course of history. Um, what Mark wants us to do this morning, and, and what all the Gospels really are pointing us towards, is to considering this final week in Jesus' life as the kind of week that sinks in in history. History is like this kind of um, field. It sinks in, and all of history revolves around this one week. This is the most important. This is the most historic week. This is the week that changed everything else in all of history and all of the world. It's Jesus' last week here on earth. It's the beginning of the end. So this morning as we read, we'll read from Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 25. We'll see the first two days of Jesus' last week, and then we'll hit um, Tuesday morning as well. Um, so we start on Sunday in chapter 11, verse 1. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If someone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. 
And they went away and found a colt tied to the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Verse 12. On the following day, so now we're on Monday, when they came from Bethany, he was tired. Or he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he, as he was teaching them and saying to them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, now we're hitting Tuesday, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, I have faith in God, truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Alright, so on these first couple of days of Jesus' last week here on Earth, we, we learn a lot of things. In particular, I want to highlight this morning um, one truth we learn about Jesus' identity, so who he is, and then a few truths we learn about what it means to follow him, what it means for the disciples in the first century, and also you and I in Sugarland in 2015 to, to be followers of Christ, to be people who, who walk after him and who um, worship him and who faithfully uh, obey what he has given us. So on Sunday, he walks into Jerusalem. He heads to Jerusalem. This is called Palm Sunday. If you're familiar, if you grew up in church, this is where the little kids had the palms, okay? Um, <clears throat> he, he walks in, and he's coming from Bethany. You'll remember, throughout Mark, Jesus is making a journey south from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's been headed towards Jerusalem. Um, three times now, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. When I get there, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to rise again. So he is fully aware of his vocation. He, he knows what he's going to Jerusalem to do and what's going to happen to him. Um, now, as he's on his way, they head to a place called Bethany. Um, Bethany is about 12 miles away from Jerusalem. And what Jesus will do, and we see it here in this passage, is throughout his last week, he'll kind of go to Bethany at night as like a, a refuge. Okay, he has some friends there that he stays with. And then he goes to Jerusalem during the day. Um, this is Passover time, which means all the Jews in the whole wide world are coming to Jerusalem at one time to celebrate the day that they were once freed from their enemies, the Egyptians. And all the Jews are celebrating and hoping for the day when once again they'll be freed from their enemies. So this time it's Rome. The Roman Empire had enslaved the Israelites. They were waiting for a king to come and break loose those bonds. And so Jesus, um, almost like Times Square, 
on New Year's Eve, right? There's nowhere to go. That's what Jerusalem would have been like at this time. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's a mess. Um, heads up there, but he has his place in Bethany. Now, and what you need to know is Bethany is the, one of the lowest cities on the face of the earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. Um, it's about 12 miles until you get to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. So imagine the hike, okay? You are on a steep incline marching up all the way to Jerusalem. Finally, Jesus gets to Jerusalem. On his way there, though, um, we get this story about how Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He, he says, hey, two of y'all, go ahead. And you're going to find this, this colt, so this young donkey. I want you to get it. I want you to bring it back. And that's how I'm going to enter into the city. Um, and, and they're like, well, what? Someone might be suspicious when we start stealing livestock. Okay, what do we say? Um, Jesus says, just tell them it's for me. And it'll be fine. Okay. Um, they go, they get it, they bring it back. Um, Matthew and Luke, in their Gospels, when they record the story, they'll spell out all the Old Testament prophecies behind this action, what the symbolism of it means. Mark here just gives us a short little story. Jesus gets on the donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem. And as he's riding, um, a party kind of breaks out. People start bowing down before him. People start laying their cloaks out on the road. People start waving branches at him. This is not what you did when your favorite uncle showed up to town, okay? This is what you did for a king. This is what you did when Caesar showed up at your city, okay? You had a huge celebration, and you welcomed him in. Um, and it's a big deal, and, and this will be important if you were to snub the king as he entered your city. If you did not receive him correctly, if you did not receive him rightly. Everything about this scene here screams king. There is some irony and some kind of anticlimactic um, imagery here. Jesus is on a donkey, uh, which is not the most kingly of livestock, um, he could be on a big horse, okay? He could have that kind of an army around him. Instead, he rides in on a donkey. Um, but again, people are, are laying out the cloak. In fact, this story probably has echoes of an Old Testament story where there's a king at the time who God had judged and who God wanted to be overthrown. And so God came to another man, Jehu, and said, you're going to go into Jerusalem and you're going to kind of flip the, the authority over. You're going to get the throne from him. And when Jehu marched into the city, they laid down cloaks in front of him. And then a coup d'etat happened. Jehu became the king. And this is seemingly what's on the disciples' minds and on the crowd's minds as Jesus walks into Jerusalem. Others are in rule at this point, some Jewish leaders in, in the Roman Empire, but yet they're waiting and celebrating the fact that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to sit on the throne. He's going to be the true king. You get very political language here. He says, Hosanna, which is a word meaning um, uh, save us now. Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Just like a great king David, now the kingdom is going to show up again on the earth. We finally have one ruler to lead them all. This is from Psalm 118. A psalm often sung by the Jewish people as they went up to Jerusalem. As they made the trek from wherever they were up the mountain to Jerusalem and to the temple. Another irony of the story, um, while Jesus marches in on a donkey, he also marches into no fanfare at all. Notice what happens after this big celebration. He gets to Jerusalem, he gets to the temple, and what happens? Nothing. There's nothing happening. Seems like no one really pays him attention. Not even in a bad way. There's no controversy, anything of that nature. He gets there, it's late at night. He kind of looks around, inspects the scene, and then he goes home. The very anticlimactic kind of entry into um, the city if you're the king. Now, we've seen this theme multiple times, times throughout the, the Gospel of Mark where um, disciples or the crowds ask Jesus or they guess about Jesus that he is the coming king. He's the one who's going to come and fix everything that's gone wrong in the world. Set up the kingdom of God. Get rid of all the things God doesn't want in his creation. 
And he acts that way too. He sees disease and he gets rid of it. He sees sicknesses and he gets rid of it. He sees sins and he forgives them. He sees death and he resurrects people. He sees demons and he casts them out. But over and over, the disciples and the crowds have made the mistake of thinking Jesus was going to be a king just like all their other kings. He was going to be a king just like Caesar, just like King Herod. He's going to rule with authority and coercive power and the sword. And Jesus again has said, no, 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 I'm, I am the king and I am going to establish God's kingdom, but I'm doing it through love and I'm doing it through patience. I'm doing it through sacrifice. I'll be a king when I die. That will be when I sit on my throne. It's when I'm hoisted up on the cross with a robber on each side of me. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's an upside down kind of kingdom. A kingdom that um, works through self-sacrificial love. And once again in Mark's gospel, you and I are challenged like the disciples and the crowds are challenged to recognize this is who Jesus is. Um, we sometimes make Jesus out to, to be um, kind of a, a national hero for us. Um, oftentimes I think our temptation is more to make Jesus an individual hero for us. And so Jesus becomes this kind of personal savior that forgives our sins and, and makes us feel better. And we lose this kind of cosmic aspect to who Jesus is. Um, that he is truly and rightfully the king of the entire world. Even though his kingdom is so much different than we could ever imagine. Even though we, we long for a day when Jesus sits on a, a throne here on earth with us and, and gets rid of all um, evil from creation. You and I, just like the disciples, are called to recognize that Jesus is the king. He is the king walking in um, to Jerusalem. Now then you get Monday. And on Monday, um, we come to our fourth sandwich story in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been walking with us through Mark, you'll know that Mark likes to tell stories in a sandwich form. So you have an outer layer, an inner layer, and then you come back to the same outer layer. You have bread, meat, and then bread again. Um, this is what's happening here with the fig tree. Okay, Something goes on about a fig tree. Then you have something about the temple, and we come back to the fig tree. Mark tells stories in this way so that you'll try to connect the two together. So you'll be like, how in the world does the fig tree mean anything next to the temple? Like, What do those two things have in common with each other? Which actually is one of the things most people get confused about in the Gospels. If I um, meet someone or, or I'm talking with someone, and I tell them, hey, go, go read Mark. Um, go read the Gospel, come back to me, let's talk about it. One of the questions I usually have is, what's up with the tree? What's up with the fig tree? Jesus seems here to be kind of petty. It, okay, Mondays are awful. We can all agree, right? Um, this is a classic Monday for Jesus, okay? He's up in the morning. It's early. He's got a long day ahead of him. He's hungry. The tree doesn't have food. We've all been there, right? When we think there's something in the kitchen, in the refrigerator or the cabinet, and we go in, it's not there. We curse it. It burns to the ground, okay? It's just me. I'm just trying to be Christ-like, okay? Um, it's not there. You, you curse it. Um, the disciples, you've got to be thinking, are, are, are like, it's going to be a long day, okay? Um, this, we've been up for like an hour. Jesus is already mad at the tree. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have anywhere to eat. This is, and it turns out to be a very long day um, for them. You've got this, this fruit tree, um, this fig tree, excuse me, um, and it's a confusing story. But again, I think if we link it to the temple and what happens in the temple, it starts to make sense what Jesus is doing with this fig tree. Um, Bertrand Russell, a, a famous atheist at an atheist uh, conference, once said this is one of the reasons he um, doesn't believe Jesus is God. He doesn't worship God. Um, it's because of this kind of petty incident in the Gospels. And he compares Jesus to other world leaders and world heroes throughout history. And he says, um, these other people, I would have to put them above Jesus because he, he here gets upset at a tree. It's not even the tree's fault. Right? It's not the season for this to happen. And, and you, you want to tell Bertrand, like, keep reading, right? I mean, use some critical thinking. You're a scholar. Come on. Connect the dots here. Um, so we'll ignore the fig for a minute, and let's look at the temple. OK? 
okay? This is probably the most upset Jesus gets throughout his life. In the other Gospels, again, we get much more detail. Jesus has a whip, he's yelling, he's running people off, okay? Here we just get a simple story. Jesus goes in, though, to probably the most important place for all Israelites, all, all Jewish people, and he causes a commotion. If, if Jesus, if you had to pinpoint a moment where Jesus kind of sealed his fate in Jerusalem, it would probably be on this Monday. The moment he goes into Jerusalem and, and causes a ruckus there is the moment he's probably not going to get out alive that week. And you see there the chief priests, the elders, um, they had already been seeking a way to destroy him. And they see this unfold and they're like, this is it. He's a dead man walking at this point. His, his fate is sealed. He goes into the temple and he dramatically shuts the temple down. Um, and so the language Mark used, the, the phrase he says, he says he went in and he drove out those who were selling things and those who were buying things. He, he turned over the tables of money changers. So this is not your polite, meek Jesus, right? He's probably not like, let me take those coins, set them right there, and then fold the legs of the table and turn it over, right? I mean, he's, he's, there's probably change flying around. People are probably not happy at him right now. Um, if someone came into our service and started, you know, flip my podium over, started throwing chairs around, chairs around, Wes is equipped. Um, he's going to handle that. We take him. We actually send him to a karate class every week uh, for that. He's improving. Okay. Um, I think he's at what is it, purple belt right now? Slowly getting there. He had a he had a nasty incident with a seven year old last week, um, but we're not going to bring it up. No. <laughs> So, never mind. <laughs> Wes has actually gone in, kind of rest, never, Wes has a, never mind. I can't, I don't know. He, he, he tore his clothes once wrestling with a student. Can we say that out loud? Um, so we do send Wes to cry lessons, but it's not for security. It's just, um, Jesus is making a scene, right, in the most important place. Um, get that image out of your head. Um, <laughs> And he's, he's drawing people out. He's dragging them out. He's, he's flipping over tables. Um, he's not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple. So if you want to pass by wherever Jesus is in the temple, you better drop your stuff and just pass by. Um, two things you should, should think about, okay, when we read the story. We misunderstand it in a couple of ways. The first thing is the temple is a very large place. I mean, a very, very, very large place. Um, one man's not shutting down the entire temple. Jesus is causing a commotion in one area of the temple, okay? Um, this is not like a complete shutdown. It's not like a bomb threat at the White House where everything stops, right? Um, he's in one little corner of the temple somewhere. We don't know which exact part. Probably in the courts where they're doing the selling. Um, and he's causing commotion. The other thing is, is we should imagine this being an all type of thing. This is not a hostage situation where they wait out Jesus all day until he finally leaves and start things up again at the temple, right? They had security guards at the temple. They had the West Popes. Jesus is going to get kicked out or arrested, right? Um, what Jesus is doing is he's making commotion for a short period of time in one area of the temple to try to communicate something much bigger than and just his actions on that day. Um, he, he, he drives them out and he says, this is supposed to be a blessing for all the nations. Instead, it's become this den of robbers. A couple of things. One, I think this, this word robbers is probably mistranslated, I think, a little bit for you. Um, the word I think would be better translated as, as criminal or as revolutionary, um, which fits in better with uh, Jesus' quote before, right? You should be a blessing to all the nations. 
Instead of, we've seen, the Israelites wanting to fight against Rome and violently overthrow them, Jesus says, look, y'all are supposed to be um, loving your enemies. Y'all are supposed to be going out and spreading um, God's good name all over the earth, not becoming this nationalistic, hateful type of people. We've seen Jesus do this throughout the Gospels. Um, and we, we should also not think perhaps that Jesus is just upset about the money that's going on in the temple. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with the money being changed in the temple. Um, Jesus is not just making a general statement that religion and money shouldn't be mixed. In fact, I think, if you look in the past 200 years, where religion and money has been separated, the most harm has been done. Um, where people decide to leave their religion behind and just work on money, just focus on money, and then you get into big troubles here. Jesus is not making a general statement about that. Um, what happened at the temple is you have people coming from all over the world, and, and the main kind of focus or function of the temple is sacrifice. And to sacrifice something, you'd have to give an animal to the priest, and it would have to be a pretty specific kind of animal, an unblemished sheep. Or, or a dove of a certain kind. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an unblemished sheep. <clears throat> if you have, if you tried to travel 50 miles, 100 miles, 150 miles with it to Jerusalem, usually what happens is it's not unblemished by the time you get there. So what most people did is they, instead of taking their sheep, bought one at the temple. Nothing wrong with it. In fact, it was pretty convenient for them. It was a nice thing to do for people. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk through a crowded street holding a live dove. It, again, is not the most convenient thing to do. Um, so while most peasants, one, didn't own these animals, um, two, even if you owned them, it doesn't really make sense for you to, to bring them all the way to the temple. And so what you had is in the courtyard of the temple, you would do two things. First, you would exchange your money. There'd be a currency exchange because you don't want to pay for the sacrifice with a coin that has Caesar's face on it. So you give that to the people in the courtyard, and they give you a Jewish currency um, that you can use and not feel like you're serving two gods here. And then two, you go and you get whatever kind of animal that was required on, on that day um, for that feast, for that situation, and then you would um, sacrifice it with the priest. Um, all that system in and of itself is not inherently bad. Was there probably some injustice going on? Yeah. Were probably some people getting rich off of poor people and manipulating the system? Most likely, yeah. Um, it seems that the bigger issue Jesus has with the temple is its very purpose in existing. Um, all throughout the book of Mark and throughout the other Gospels, and we'll see this as we keep reading through Mark, Jesus has either explicitly or implicitly said in, in various ways that he is better than the temple, or he is replacing the temple, or that he is making the temple redundant. It doesn't even need to exist anymore because of who he is and what he's come to do. So, for instance, this is why people get so upset at him when he forgives sins. Because where do you get sins forgiven? The temple. There's a place to do that. The Pharisees aren't just hateful people. They don't just want everyone not to have their sins forgiven. They just want you to do it the right way. You go to the temple. You offer a sacrifice. You speak to a priest. Jesus says, huh, I'm in a city in Galilee. You came through the roof. Your sins are forgiven. Where do you get healing? Where do you get prayed for? Where do you go to the priests? You go to the temple. Jesus seems to be replacing these systems, saying that where the temple was once the place where God dwelled among men, now the place where God dwells among men is himself. He's God's presence among humanity. God in him is working to heal all the nations. The, the temple is redundant. Um, and this is the message you get, I think, when you combine it with the fig tree story. Um, what happens with the fig tree? Jesus sees it, and it's not bearing fruit, and he curses it. Because you're never going to bear fruit again. Now, you would know if you read your Old Testament inside and outside and inside and outside that the, the fig tree is a very common metaphor for the temple and for Jerusalem. And when Jesus curses the fig tree and then when later they see it um, withered up, um, this is very obviously, especially wrapped around the temple story, 
uh, enacted prophecy. It's an acting out of Jesus' message, which is basically the temple, Jerusalem, they've rejected me. They're not bearing the fruit they're supposed to bear, and they're going to be destroyed because of it. Jesus will say this much more explicitly as we keep moving on through the Gospel of Mark. In fact, this prediction comes true. Not long after Jesus' life, the temple, Israel, the, the, the Jerusalem uh, city, it's all destroyed. It's, it's burned down by the Romans in 70 AD. And, and the Christians took this as proof of what Jesus was teaching and saying. A proof in Hebrews, right? That we don't need the sacrifices anymore. We don't need that old temple system. We're in a new covenant where Jesus is our sacrifice. We heard already Jesus said he's going to be the ransom for us, for our salvation. We don't need sacrifices anymore. Jesus himself is replacing that whole system. Um, Jesus uses language a lot about trees and bearing fruit, right? He says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't bear good fruit, you're not a good tree. And he says, if you're a bad tree, you're going to bear bad fruit. And if you're a bad tree, eventually you're going to be cut down. This is a very common metaphor uh, in Israel. And so what's happening is not Jesus getting upset at one specific tree because he's hungry and, you know, Snickers, you're not you when you're hungry. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a, a prophecy. It's him trying to act out a much deeper, more significant message. That I've come to the tree, and it needed to show me some fruit. But there's none there to see. And so it's going to wither away. It's going to be replaced. And in fact, again, that's what happens um, to Jerusalem. Now, as Peter points this out to him, he says, look, the tree's withered. Um, Jesus gives him um, some teaching. He kind of gathers disciples around and gives them some teaching. He says, look, if you have faith in God, um, you can say to the mountain, move, and it'll move. He's probably again referring to the temple mountain right there. And then he starts to make these more general points. He says, therefore, verse 24, whatever I tell you, or I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you. Or if you, if you stand before um, your Father praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father is in heaven may also forgive you of your trespasses. Jesus says um, the community that has been judged, the temple community, um, needs to, to um, go by the wayside. And the community that's going to rise up in its absence, his community, community of followers that he is beginning to establish among the disciples, they're going to bear fruit, particularly um, by a life of prayer, and by a life of faith, and by a life of forgiveness. Jesus here doesn't tell the disciples to pray. He just assumes that they'll be praying. He talks about when you pray. You're going to be praying. To follow Jesus means that they were prayerful people. He, he tells them when you're praying, he says, don't have doubts. Don't, don't second guess things. Have faith. Be sure of things. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark again. Jesus says faith goes hand in hand with experiencing the transformative power of the kingdom. A lack of faith is going to somehow inhibit your ability to experience all that God wants to perform in your life and the life of those around you. And then he makes this very striking statement again about forgiveness. Because as you're praying, you better be sure that you're walking in forgiveness. You better be sure that you are living in mutual forgiveness with the community of disciples around you. Um, when Jesus says here to, to forgive, okay, it's kind of a harsh statement. He gives a condition. He says, whenever you're praying, forgive if you have something against someone else so that your Father may forgive you as well. It's an if statement. Um, if you want to be forgiven, you need to forgive other people. Uh, if you were to ask, if you were to go around and, and ask Christians, you know, what do you have to do to be forgiven? 
What did you do to have the Father forgive you your sins? You probably hear a lot of things. You might hear this once or twice, but this will probably not be on the top of the list. Forgive other people. For Jesus, it seems to be a pretty important step. Um, proof of this is that he says something similar to this, but a little bit harsher, though, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says, again, if you want to be forgiven, forgive. And then he says the opposite. If you don't forgive, your Father's not going to forgive you. He, he reverses it around, makes it even kind of more of a, a tight loophole you can't get out of here. Um, what this tells us, one, is that Jesus said this a lot. If more than one gospel are mentioning it in more than one place in Jesus' lifetime, this is probably one of those one-liners he has. And he's mentioning over and over and over and over again. This is probably something he said at almost every village he visited. When he's instructing people on how to live in the kingdom and how to follow after the Lord faithfully. He's saying, look, if you're, if you're truly going to understand what's happening, if, if you really receive forgiveness, that's got to be the source and the foundation of you forgiving other people. Um, you've got to look around and see where hatred is in your heart, where relationships are tense and stretched or broken off, and you've got to learn how to forgive. He says, if that's not evident in your life, um, I'm not sure how you're expecting to receive forgiveness. There's lots of ways to think about how this works, right? It sounds kind of legalistic and very harsh, if you don't forgive other people, um, your father won't forgive you. One way to think of it is um, if, if you're the type of person who doesn't walk in forgiveness, it's going to be very hard for you to receive forgiveness. Does that make sense? I mean, if you're the type of person who can't imagine forgiving another person because of what they've done to you, how they've wronged you, it's going to be for hard for you to imagine someone else, much less God himself, forgiving you for ways that you've wronged him. You're almost, in a sense, closing yourself off to any, to any shot of receiving forgiveness just by the type of person that you are and continue to become. Christians, if, if they should be anything, should be some of the most forgiving and merciful and gracious people around. Um, a grudge should be something um, that should be erased from a community of faith. This is what makes Christian communities stand out from other communities is we can exist in disagreement. We have unity in diversity. Um, just because we don't have the same opinions on something or don't agree about something or we have a conflict of personalities, we don't have to split and run away from each other like the rest of the world does. We don't have to divide ourselves along any kind of lines, economic, political, social. We stay together gathered around one table. We forgive one another. We walk with grace and mercy toward one another. Jesus says, have faith. Says your prayers need to be built up on forgiveness and on, on faith. Um, earlier, Jesus would say, if you are going to the altar in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you're going to the altar and you remind yourself, you remember that you have something against someone else, he says, leave the altar. Go fix what's wrong with your brother and then come back. For, for Jesus, the priority of things to do in the world, um, restoring relationships with one of your brothers or sisters is much more important than any kind of religious ritual. And going to the altar, performing some kind of religious duty. Um, it's integral to, to what it is to, to be a disciple. And again, he says, have faith. Know in your heart that, that things will happen and will be done. We've talked before at length about the difference between faith and doubt. About how doubt isn't always necessarily the enemy of faith. Sometimes they can be companions. There's healthy doubt. Um, but the real opposite of doubt is unbelief. Um, doubt only exists if there's something there to doubt. Right? If, if you're doubting something, it means there's some sort of faith there. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is just not believing. Not thinking anything will happen. Having no trust at all that the 
Jesus is who he says he is and that um, when he says to do certain things, we are supposed to do certain things in response. For disciples then, and even for us today, I think there are um, lessons for us to be learned from, from Palm Sunday and, and Holy Monday and the beginning of, of Holy Tuesday here. You and I need to continually, over and over and over again, ask ourselves and remind ourselves and grow ourselves into recognizing Jesus as King. To recognizing His, his kingdom movement. To recognizing what began so long ago and continues to this day. Recognizing the ways that we're called to be involved in that. You and I, as His followers, need to walk in obedience. Willing to give things up, like the, the owners of the cults who gave the cults up. Walk in worship like those who praise Jesus as he enters into the city. Live a life of prayer. For some of us, we might not even be able to remember the last time we prayed. Or it might have been last Sunday. And this morning, scriptures are saying, Okay, follow me, come after me, Jesus beckons. But, but do that in a prayerful way. Do that in a life of prayer. And let that prayer be built up with faith, with trust. And let that prayer be built up with forgiveness. I'm guessing if we were to go around the room, there are a lot of people in our lives who we have some sort of grudge against, who we are upset about for this reason or that reason, who we find it hard to forgive. And the call to follow Jesus is the call to go through the difficulty of learning how to initiate and be intentional about forgiving the people around us. Not because they deserve it, because Jesus has commanded it. Again, because we, we know that God knows how creation works better than we do. Um, we know that, that forgiveness is not, the, um, not a trap of unhappiness God has set for us. Where we have to be a doormat for everybody in our lives. So it's the freedom he has for us to receive his love, to give it to the people around us. So we come to the table this morning and we, we receive communion. And I want you to, um, I want us all to uh, remember and remind ourselves who Jesus is. He's the king. He's the exalted one. He's God in flesh, bringing salvation to the world and to his people. And then commit ourselves once again to following after him in obedience, in prayer, in faith, and in forgiveness. We have been forgiven much. We're called to forgive much. And this morning, let us once again recognize and praise our King and commit ourselves to following him with all of our obedience. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the day that you have given us. I pray that you would uh, open up our eyes and new.